Welcome to the Freedom Chasers Podcast, where we bring you interviews and discussions that share the stories, successes, goals, and dreams of real estate agents and real estate investors pursuing a life of purpose and freedom. Today, we have the pleasure of interviewing Mike DeHan, my business partner, fellow real estate investor. This man has got some stories for you because he's been in the trenches where real estate investors are. Um, but we're not going to waste any time. We're going to get right into it. So starting off, we're going to ask you, tell us about the craziest real estate story or transaction that you've ever been a part of. Yeah. So first off, Matt uh, and Tim, thanks for having me on. And uh, I appreciate, Matt, that you come on with like your podcast voice that's like super excited. But that's also the same voice that you have when we're going through wins in the morning. So it really is. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. yeah that, thanks, that's man. perfect. Um, so, you know, I think it's just representative of sort of who you are as, uh, you know, a sales leader, right? Which is, which is, you know, you have to be bringing excitement to be bringing those guys up to speed every day. Um, but yeah, yeah, you know, craziest real estate transaction. So I'm going to, the, the kind of prefacing to, to put along here is that it, it didn't actually end up being a transaction because we basically got blocked on the one yard line. Um, but so we had this deal. It was a mobile home park in probably the worst area of town. Um, and, and it's a mobile home like in a park on the land. You know, the characters that are involved in deals like that are always super interesting. So we've been working this guy for months. You know, there was a lot of drug use. It was kind of a sensitive thing. We, we pretty much had to always be communicating with him in a way where like we knew that he was sober and he was making decisions, you know, on his own will and not because of the drugs or the alcohol that he was taking. So we're going through this for months with this guy, trying to help him find out where he's going to go, where he's going to move, all these sort of situations. Halfway through the transaction, um, a bunch of squatters move into the property. And then our, our regular visits to this property end up with us getting into confrontations with the squatters at all time. And they're basically now siding against, well, I guess, teaming up against us and trying to brainwash the seller to not sell. So there's some, there's some weird stuff starting to Take us into this right? a little bit. So yeah. like, give us a, some some example, if you can say, give us some banter. Like, how, how is this going? Yeah, so, you know, it, it started with basically like, 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 oh, he's always on drugs. He's not able to make his own decisions. You know, you guys aren't allowed to be talking to him when he's like this, all this sort of stuff. Two, eventually escalated to one of our staff members, coming up into almost a physical confrontation where they're getting in his face and they're trying to, you know, threatening him pretty, pretty violently. And, you know, it just kind of kept escalating from there. And ultimately, you know, their motive is they're squatting on this property. The guy is too meager uh, to really do anything and they don't want to be kicked out. So, you know, that as soon as it sells, you're going to be kicked out. Right. This whole thing, part of all this, we got started connecting with the neighbor. The neighbor's now vouching for us. He's like helping us facilitate the transaction. So it turns into- The <laughs> neighbor wants to no Yeah, we can no longer get close to the house. So we're basically like dropping messages at the neighbor's house that the the neighbor who also has a walker is like skirting over the, the mobile home park to like give our letters to the seller. So we're trying to communicate information secretly, right? And it's just getting, <laughs> getting super out of hand. Um, so anyway, we end up getting through a bunch of stuff. We get, you know, with this thing signed around, we're basically just trying to figure out how to close it at this point. We, we don't want to own this property. So we assign it. Um, we have a, we, I think we have the contract for 30,000. We assign it for 40,000 and 
we're getting to the closing day, right? <clears throat> the guy, the seller is not capable of going anywhere. Um, we also don't necessarily feel safe bringing him to the closer's office just because we don't know what situations could happen. And like, you know, our closers, you know, they're a bunch of women, you know, in their thirties and forties, like they don't need to be putting up with these sort of characters, right? They already do enough for us as it is. So we get a mobile notary that comes out. They're sitting in the mobile home with this guy signing the document. One of our staff members is there to make sure that the seller showed up sober and all this sort of stuff. And he's signing on his own free will. It's all going good. The mobile notary is not about the signing location at all. There, She's pissed off the second that she rolls up, but hey, that's, that's her gig, right? Anyway, so we're going through signing. We're like halfway through the signing. And all of a sudden, this dude rolls up, this Russian guy, rolls up in a truck and just starts barking at my uh, staff member and saying, mm. hey, I, you know, I'm buying this mobile home. We're going to my closing attorney right now. And literally physically drags the seller out of the mobile home and throws him in his truck. He's, he's abducting this person. Kidnapped. <laughs> <laughs> he's kid, kidnapping our seller. And, you know, like the Russian guy and, and our, our staff had some back and forth. And it, I'll put it this way. I'll, I'll give Judd a shout out. This was his like third day of work. Right. Oh, man. With us. So he's, he's getting energy. the full gambit of off market real estate. Um, and uh, so he's having some banter with this Russian guy. Judd calls and he's like, what do I do? I'm like, I don't know. Who is this dude? No idea. So I ended up going on the phone and he said, hey, I'm going to this one closer's office. You know, I'm under contract for this deal. I'm going to close it. So I, I know this attorney that he's closing with. We've done a lot of deals with him. I call the attorney. I'm like, hey, you know, just so you know, if this guy shows up to this deal, it's fraudulent. You know, we were literally signing with it right now. Um, and, uh, you know, like if, if he comes in and you close it, just know that you're supporting a fraudulent deal. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, okay. Like, I'll, you know. Their contract, they did have one like six months ago, but it's gone out now, blah, 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 blah. Anyway, guy drives away with our seller. They're gone for like five days. My guys are going back there like every day looking for him. We have no idea where the seller is. Eventually, he shows up. He's all rough, you know, um, and he won't talk to us or anything like that. Approximately a week later, we're checking title. What did that attorney do? He closed the freaking deal. Oh, dang. Right? So he and, – and – you know, so we missed out on it because this guy literally abducted our seller. But the worst thing about it was <laughs> like now one of our guys is over there kind of recently. This is about six months ago. He's over in that neighborhood looking at another property. So our arrangement with the seller was we were going to help him um, buy a new like RV or a fifth wheel and like find somewhere to go, get him a KOA, something like that. What we found out through the grapevine actually happened is the seller really ripped this guy off because he bought the property for $45,000 or what $35,000, $5,000 more than we were. And then he sold back the seller, this crappy fifth wheel for essentially the purchase price of the mobile. So the guy basically <laughs> walked away with nothing. The seller did. And the, the Russian guy ripped off this guy. And now the seller is still living at the property, but now the squatters have taken over the mobile home. And the seller is living in the fifth wheel out front. And the Russian guy, I don't even know what he got out of it. Like, what was, what, like, there's no point to this transaction. He doesn't even have anything that's worth it. <laughs> maybe he was in on the drug ring. But me, uh, honestly, maybe that's what it was. I have no idea. So, so, you know, it was a transaction we were almost involved in up until, you know, like the, literally the halfway through the signing docs. But that, that's definitely up there for probably the craziest real estate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you look at the individual components of that thing, you've got, you know, essentially like 
you know, kidnapping, armed, armed, is it robbery or whatever? Like, and then they close, you know? Mm -hmm. And so then the guy has, doesn't even own his house anymore. Yeah. That's just Mm -hmm. wild. Yeah. And you got fraudulent real estate transaction in there because the lawyer was made very aware that he wasn't supposed to do it. We sent him all the documents and everything. He still chose to close it so he could make his, his closing fee, you know? Um, smokes. The whole thing was, yeah, just unbelievable. Sounds like um, those squatters had some connections to the Russian mob or something, huh? So, so that's actually what we were thinking because because <laughs> yeah. the way that the guy rolled up, right? Like literally at signing, the dude just like rolls up at that moment. And then we didn't even know who this guy was, right? And that that coincidence is you know doesn't really make any sense. So I guarantee you that the squatter saw us and we're like, oh man, we better call this dude to to come and interfere and like let him know what's going on. Doesn't sound like a coincidence, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gotcha. Sounds like sounds like the Russian just wanted to annex the property. Yeah, 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 or something. I don't know. And he owns, he owns like a couple other mobiles in that area too. We we've learned after the fact. And same thing though. They're all beat to hell. Like they're not worth anything. They're not being rented. So I don't know. He just is determined to be the slumlord of this area. I guess. Holy moly, that is nuts. So take us into. I mean, these types of situations happen when you're an investor. Like maybe not this crazy, but. Take us into like the hardest aspect of being a real estate agent or real estate investor. Sorry, that that you know maybe the dark days if you if you'd say as far as being an investor. Yeah, so I mean, I, th- I think the hardest part is also the best part of it, and why people get so into it. Right? Is you know the lows as a real estate investor are extremely low, mm-hmm. you know, and they're and and not only that, but the like escaping from those lows, it isn't like, you know, you kind of just flip a switch. Like when something goes wrong, it can be expensive and it can be time consuming to get out of, you know, whether that's in a transaction that goes sideways, that's in a rental property where something terrible happens. Um, you know, that's like, I don't know, you missing out on an opportunity because you were trying to be a little bit greedy and you're trying to make a little bit more and somebody else captures it. Right. And those things can be extremely sort of detrimental to your mental health and overall well-being. But then the caveat is that of that is we do enough of this business. You'll also have the huge wins. You know, I, I think that there's a, a major reason that you see a lot of crossover of people who are into real estate who are also really into like gambling, right? <laughs> because you get the same yeah. dopamine hits off stuff, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, you know, like I, I, I used to um, work in an office with a bunch of real estate investors and they like, like little stuff. They'd be like, you know, they had a little putting green. And they'd say, hey, I'll bet you a hundred bucks I can make this putt. And they do that all day, you know? <laughs> and that's the same sort of thing that you get in, in, in real estate. And especially when you're off market, the deals can be so massive. And the thing that's tricky is that your cost per transaction by your marketing, once you have a system, doesn't really change. Like for mm-hmm. us, you know, Matt, our, our average cost per transaction is about $3,200 of marketing costs, Solid. right? Mm-hmm. But but that's that's per deal. But the deal size can range from five thousand dollars to a hundred thousand dollars off that same thirty two hundred dollar transaction. Well, exactly, or even less, right? I mean, the money or that you spent less. on the deal where you got robbed, literally, right? figuratively, <laughs> is negative. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, yeah, and, and there's there's those two that go sideways, and you and you can never count the money until it's in your mm-hmm. bank account. We've we've made that mistake Definitely. so many times, and and I mean, yeah. You, you, it's, it makes it very challenging to run a business because you try to forecast your cash flows and all these sort of things, but you just can't until the money's in your account because things can go sideways at the last moment. I mean, even a few months ago, we had a flip. Me and my, my partner, we listed a hoarder house we bought. We completely turned this thing and it was like dialed in. It was perfect. Interest rates were still low. We sold it for like 30 grand over ask. We were going to make, I think our, our net, I think was 89,000. Okay. It's a condo in an HOA community. 
that's that's important. So you go list it. Everything's super smooth, super easy. Inspection's good. Nothing needed. Literally the day before closing, the buyer calls us and is like, hey, actually the buyer's lender calls us because he was also a friend of ours, the uh, loan officer. He calls us and he's like, hey, we can't fund this deal because the HOA's insurance doesn't cover the replacement cost of the property. And we're like, what do you oh, mean? Dang. You know, and he's, he's like, well, the way that material costs have gone up, real estate's appreciated, um, combined with the fact that the HOA had a uh, couple of situations over the last couple of years that lowered their, basically what the insurance is going to cover. They're like, no lender is going to be able to fund this at all. You know, and this is the day, like, like we were expecting to have 85 grand or whatever coming back more than that, because we had all our money into it. It was like $140,000 to repair costs, down payment, everything it was supposed to be coming back. This still is stuck there. This was back in February. And now what three we're months later, do, three months later. Yeah. So what we're having to do to overcome this now is we are working with the HOA to actually disband the entire HOA because no one there can currently <laughs> sell any of their properties. Dude, you will you be know. my hero. You're already my hero, but you will be my hero <laughs> if you disband an entire HOA to get a deal done. Yeah. Yeah. That, right. That I mean, but we're, 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 that's what we're doing. We're in process right now. Uh, I mean, and, and the lows and the lows are just, especially when you're doing volume, they're just abundant. Even, even today, I'll, I'll give you another one. I've, I found this out from our other partner, Dan, about an hour and a half ago. So we had this deal that it was this Airbnb that we was like to the it was dime is perfect. Right. And, you know, fully renovated, like everyone that saw this property was like, that's beautiful. You guys did awesome. In January, February, we um, had a little oil leak in the furnace between guests and it flooded basically the entire basement with diesel, right? (laughs) So, and the fumes seeped into everything. And essentially what we had to do was we had to gut the house. The biggest issue with a lot of this stuff was that the insurance company, of course, wasn't going to give us the money to take to fix it. And they were requiring us to use their contractors. They wouldn't let us use their own. And their contractors just didn't do anything and basically just wrecked the property, right? And they took them months to do nothing. And now the insurance company won't give us any money. So we finally got around that. And, uh, you know, we got all the materials ordered. We, the insurance company, we got a different person involved. And they were going to basically fund the uh, the rebuild with our contractor. So new materials are all ordered. Everything's coming. It was supposed to be delivered today. You can't make this up. Dan calls me and he's like, Hey, guess what? The distribution warehouse for Home Depot burned down on Wednesday. <laughs> all of our stuff is gone. <laughs> That's where all the fuel went. The diesel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <right. Yep. laughs> you know, so, so we have, we have, we have those, those losses constantly, but mixed in on those, we also have, you know, deals where we had, we had one a couple months ago. We called the guy, um, sorry, he called in off our letter and he's like, I want 300 grand for our property. We're like, yeah, it's a great deal. We went and signed it. We, we, uh, we, we got the contract. We assigned it for $60,000 fee. Two days later, two weeks after that, it closed. We made 60 grand in two weeks doing nothing, right? So that's the trade-off in the real estate investment world, especially when you're off market. Totally. That, wow. that is phenomenal stuff. Like, um, Let's kind of jump into how you manage your mindset in these situations where you're experiencing such high highs and such low lows like obviously mm-hmm. you become the problem solver in this situation but like how do you keep yourself balanced during that time frame oh man uh i don't know that, that's a great question like I, I'm, I mean i'm big into uh like having some sort of outlet 
which, you know, for me is like fitness and, and training and sports and stuff like that. And so that's something that I'm super regimented about. It's like my, I know some people meditate, some people read, you know, some people do you know, go for walks, whatever. For me, I, when I train, when I go to the gym, that's sort of allows me to level myself. And whenever I'm super stressed, that's something that I go and do, whether that's, you know, in the gym or that's like going outside, going for a, a, a mountain bike ride or something like that. I mean, that helps me stay super level. Um, and then, I mean, honestly, what starts to happen, it used to be really difficult to stay jaded. And what starts to happen, uh, it used to be really difficult to stay level. What happens, honestly, you just become kind of jaded to stuff. <laughs> and, you know, your tolerance level just becomes so high. That I was like, I don't know. It's like, it, it's all part of the deal, right? And so I don't even necessarily have to cope with it anymore just because it's expected. Yeah. Um, oh, you burn my yeah. house down. All right, whatever. Next. Yeah, I'm like, yeah you're just like, <laughs> of course. And, and I mean, you know, really it's more traumatic when you're starting because, you know, you're probably really stretched on your capital. You know, you have less opportunities. You have less of an abundance mindset. But now that we have so much going on, I'm always like, you know, things go sideways. That's kind of part of it. Like, I know we'll figure it out. And it's all just about learning patience, I think, is the biggest thing at the end of the day that, you know, it's not like if you have a little personal problem and you can take care of it in, you know, a week. Like, realistically, these things take months and you just kind of learn to deal with that, right? Totally. But it takes time. It takes experience. Do you feel like that this level of persistence, kind of that mindset of doing whatever it takes, do you feel like that was always been with you since you were little or do you think it was developed? It, a lot of it was developed for sure. Um, I used to be growing up relatively weak-minded. Like I would, you know, I, I've always been a stubborn person. It's particularly in the way that I like to make my own way. You know, like I, like growing up, you know, things like peer pressure, I never had to struggle with that. Like people would try to, you know, peer pressure me into things. And I just be like, I'm just not going to do that. And that was fine. <laughs> so I've always had that, which definitely helps with the determination, but getting in my own head was something that I always struggled with growing up. Mm -hmm. And I mean, what does it for me now? I have like more of a, I guess like a, a fear of losing and a fear of failure and a lot of stuff. Right. So that something that I've, I've been able to turn from kind of like an unhealthy viewpoint where like I would bring it down on myself and used it to make like more productive activities from it. Right. So just sort of learning to transition that. And I think that a big part of that is my fear of going back to my previous career, which I hated, mm. you know, so I don't really have a choice, mm. you know? <laughs> so yeah. like, it, it, it's always like, you know, some people are, are chasing things ahead of them. Some people are fleeing mm. things that are behind them. And for me, <laughs> I'm always been kind of like trying to get away from the past more so than interesting. Okay. I want to, I want to sit here for a little bit in this, in this kind of question. So, because and we train in sales all the time and mm -hmm. failure, the fear of failure is usually the thing that makes people weak is usually mm -hmm. the thing that gives them the crackly voice that sounds really desperate on the phones and, and not confident. You're referencing here that your feel of failure was what drove you to the mindset that is creating the winning mindset. So I'm not sure if you thought about this yet, but I'd love to dive into that. How did you turn the fear of failure, the weak side into the fear of failure, the driving side. Yeah. So I think it's because my fear of failure is, is very different from a lot of other people's. So a lot, mm -hmm. a lot of people, their fear of failure is, I mean, their, their idea of failure is like not having enough money, um, you know, or not having enough success and my, my previous career. So so my backstory, you know, I, I went to college, got an electrical engineering degree. I did that for five years. 
Um, I worked at Boeing. Like I had really what a lot of people would consider the dream job. You know, like when I, when I got my job at Boeing, my job, my boss shared with me afterwards that there was like 450 applicants Mm -hmm. and they interviewed like 30 people and they hired three and I was one of the people that got hired. Right. So, you know, I, I, I sort of broke into the threshold. I remember when I got in there, there was very much, uh, especially from all the old guys, they're like a congratulations, like you've made it sort of thing. And I realized that I'd screwed up on the first day when I walked in. I was like, shit. <laughs> oh, no. What have I done? You know? <laughs> so so that, that was something that was very interesting to me when I, when I got in that position. And I was being told that I was doing everything right, but I personally felt like I was failing because I was not living mm. life I wanted to live it. Interesting. Right? So then as I started to grow and I started to learn more about myself and I started to learn more about, you know, financial independence and business and those sort of things, I realized that what other people view as success, which is that salary and that stability and that comfort, that isn't my view of success. That's my view of failure, Mm. right? At a base level. So that, you know, I was able to turn that into productivity because I wanted to do everything except that. Right. So it sort of just like pushed me to start pushing the mold and uh, trying to find, you know, a way that I didn't have to fall back on that, you know, that's why I'm so, so big into, you know, anything that is outside of my comfort zone at all is because I just want to make sure I never go back to that position. Mm. Was there a specific point where you had that revelation or did that revelation come slowly over time while you were there? Is there? Yeah. So, yeah. So the, it initially started, um, 2016, uh, I think it was early 2016. I'd been working at Boeing for a little while. My father had a stroke um, that was pretty severe. He had a hemorrhagic stroke. So it's, it's not like a tr- typical stroke that kind of old people get where, you know, sometimes it can be fine if they have good blood pressure because they have like a blood clot and, you know, like, like obviously people die from those all the time, but he had a hemorrhagic stroke, which is like those kind of strokes that you hear about when there's like a track athlete that just like falls over after a track meet and dies. And they're like mm-hmm. 23 years old. His, his, uh, survival rate when you went to the hospital, the nurses were like, yeah, he probably has like a five or 10% chance to live because he had such an incredible amount of, you know, blood on the brain and all that sort of stuff. So this happened. Um, and me and my wife, we, we went down and basically lived with my mom out of the hospital for six weeks. Wow. And during, during that period of time, you know, you just have a lot of time to think. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but he was in the ICU for the vast majority of that, the neuro ICU, which is really reserved for people that have terminal injuries, um, terminal brain injuries. So we got to know the staff and I spent, you know, six weeks of my life in this neuro ICU watching young people, old people, entire families that were in car accidents. Like these people just churn through this thing. Like it was honestly like terrible description maybe, but it was like a meat grinder, right? These people would come in and they would die. And that was what I witnessed for six weeks. And I got to know the nurses and, you know, I would hear some of the backstories of these people. And I don't know, I don't know if I can swear on this, but like, as I got to know some of this, I was like, Mm -hmm. this is (laughs) fucked up, right? Most of these people, they went to work yesterday and now they're in here and they're dying, right? And so that kind of really got me, um, you know, realizing that I didn't want that for myself. So then that combined with the fact that while I was there Boeing, because I didn't have six weeks of paid time off, they called me almost every day, threatening me with disciplinary action if I didn't come back to work. 
you know, and I was like, I don't care, bro. Especially, and I like, I talked to my boss about it. My boss was cool. My boss there was actually great. Um, but it was the corporate entity that you're like, you're a number, like you're not allowed to be down there doing this. And, you know, I'm very close to my parents. So I wasn't going to, you know, go to work up in Seattle when I was going to be in the hospital down in Southern California. Right. So, you know, um, that was a super eye opening thing to me. And you know what, what that led to was a year's worth of a super deep depression that I honestly don't even remember most of that following year. Um, and then, you know, in that period of time to get out of that, I started, you know, getting into different inspirational media and, you know, just like things trying to get out of that stupor. Um, and that's what brought me into general finances. As you know, you listen to enough motivational stuff. People talk about making money. People talk about, you know, freedom of lifestyle, all those sort of things. Um, but it definitely wasn't a, you know, happy moment that got me there, but took something. Oh, thanks for sharing, man. That's, that's powerful. So can you elaborate more on maybe some of the thoughts and lessons, if there were some that came from those conversations with the nurses? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, kind of, kind of like I said before, like the, the biggest thing that was very eye opening was a lot of the people that would come in, especially in the neuro ICU, which is usually for traumatic brain stuff. It wasn't like, you know, some, like hospice or people are old and sick. Almost everybody that was in there was as a result of some sort of extreme situation mm. that they didn't know was going to happen. Right. So like I said, like that, that car accident, sorry, that I, I mentioned that literally happened. I watched the family of five come in like all five gurneys back to back. They were holding the whole family. Oh, wow. And then I proceeded to watch all of them wow. die that night. Right. It was, it was a parent, two parents and uh, three kids. Um, and you know, it was one of the things that was crazy to me. I was just overheard the nurse saying that like, like, Oh yeah, he works at, he was a dentist. He like worked at one of the dental places. And I was like, these people freaking had it made, you know, they were dentists probably making half a million dollars a year. They were just crushing it. And now their entire family's gone. Right. So what I guess the biggest takeaway that I got as I would connect with them and they would tell me about the different people, especially this was down in Newport beach. So a lot of high net worth individuals in general is regardless of who you are in your every day, you're not, you know, you're not resistant to that sudden loss, right. Which can happen to anyone or even my, my father, like when he had his stroke, I remember not long before that <clears throat> he, he was in, he was in he was 70 years old at the time. He'd gone to the uh, doctor just for his checkup. And they're like, I think, I think the doctor said, quote, if I know anyone's going to live to be 100, it's going to be you because he was so healthy. He was so fit. And then four months later, he's almost dead from a stroke. And I'll, 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 I'll add on to that as well. My dad's doing great. He like mm, pulled through somehow as a, you know, just a freak of nature specimen of health, I guess. And he's, he's still getting after it. And that was six years ago. And we went skiing this year and he's, 76 years old and crushing it but you know like it, it just that realization as you go through and you, you hear the stories from them especially because the nurses they always had stories of like certain patients that they remembered but after a while they were like it, it just becomes they become jaded to that just like we become jaded to like the weird transactions you know and then the family comes in and they all die and the nurse are just like yeah oh, i guess that's the way it goes yeah and they should move on yeah. so Wow. Um, a little yeah, heavy. Sorry. Yeah, a little heavy. <laughs> that was some intense stuff. I mean, it actually kind of yeah. brings up um, one of my mentors. Um, he actually worked in 
hospice, right? And he talked with people mm -hmm. as they were dying. And like every one of them had regrets. And every one of them, they would talk about what they didn't do with their life, not what they did do. So, yeah. I mean, experiencing Absolutely. that in person in the ICU, not with people in hospice, but people that were in accidents had to be a tremendously emotional journey. Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. And, you know, it's, it, 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 I think that that, you know, a big benefit from that as well, that did help me become kind of jaded to just like extreme events, honestly. <laughs> so when I got into the real estate sort of stuff and like crazy things do happen, I'm like, well, it could always be a lot worse, I guess. <laughs> Everyone who listens to our show knows Tim and I are passionate about obtaining financial freedom through real estate investing. We also know that everyone's situations and goals are different. And while there are programs out there that show you a path to financial freedom, many of these programs are just too cookie cutter and don't take your personality, situation, and desired outcome into account. Think about the number of times that you've watched a guru online and tried to do the exact same thing as they did but had nowhere near the same results. You are not alone. When I got started, I was continually paying for courses and getting only partial results until I discovered the path that made sense for me. The results prove this out. Most online course creators have let us in on their dirty secrets that 90 to 95% of their students never complete their course and achieve their desired outcome. This is not something that we're okay with. The benefit of working with Tim and I is that we are interviewing between 5 and 20 people every single week. We have accumulated hundreds of seven-figure strategies and gotten inside scoop from these successful entrepreneurs. We're able to work with you to pick the strategy that will best fit and then help you create the custom plan to take you quickly into financial freedom. As a former math teacher, I always taught my students that the fastest way between two points is a straight line. If you want to get rid of the many curves in the road that can make the journey longer and more costly, then go to coaching.freedomchaserspodcast.com and book a call with us. And let's get you on a straight line path to freedom. <laughs> oh, definitely. <laughs> For sure. So going through a little bit, and, and feel free to stop us if, if we go too deep here, but you're, you're in this depressed, depressed state here. Mm -hmm. You're listening to inspirational stories. Can you kind of describe what that was like? Was it kind of like its own set of highs and lows? Or was it just like slightly being picked up? What was that journey like? And, and how did you eventually come through it? So it's actually kind of challenging because I honestly don't remember. Mm. Um, as, as, if you ask my wife, she'll say that I checked out for an entire year. Mm. Um, like my history, my, my mental memories of 2016, because um, my father's stroke happened in January. Um, I remember I got married in August of that year and we moved to Spokane because I got a different job where we live now in October. And in between that time, I have memories of basically going to work, walking around like the uh, little walking area that they had, you know, where you could go like it's a hamster wheel pretty much. You could go the designated walking area for your lunch break and just listening to, you know, Tim Ferriss or, you know, different financial podcast, bigger pockets, things like that. Um, and I spent so much time thinking like, man, it would be so cool to like be those people and not doing anything actionable about it. Right. And then, you know, I would go back to work and, you know, I, I spent a lot of my time back then researching like get rich quick schemes and things like that. Cause I was just desperate, but the actual details of it, I don't remember a huge amount just because I was completely just disconnected as a whole. Mm -hmm. You know, and then my, my big coping mechanism back then was again, fitness. I was definitely the fittest I'd ever been, but at like an unhealthy level, <laughs> you know? 
So, yeah. Yeah. So, Ripped and checked out. Pretty much. Yeah. I, I was, I was competing in strength sports at a, at a pretty high level at that point. So that was like all I did. You know, I would go to, I would wake up, I'd go to work, I'd go train at the gym for three hours, you know, go home, watch Netflix or, you know, play video games and go to bed. And that was all I did pretty much all the time. So, you know, kind of wow. stopped seeing my friends, stopped doing kind of everything. I was just not in a good place, but it did just start to get the gears turning. Right. And then, um, I mean, honestly, I think one of the biggest things that changed and I, I, you know, owe our now business partner, Dan, actually a lot for this because he helped me get a job back in Spokane because he knew that I was desperate, desperate at, uh, to leave Boeing and it was hard to find, you know, stuff, especially that was something that I learned about working at Boeing or any of those large companies. They teach you to be a Boeing employee, but it makes you unemployable anywhere else. So when I was like trying to find other jobs, even though I'd only been there for a couple of years, um, everyone was like, well, you don't actually do anything that we need you to do. Like you're good at like the Boeing process, but not with what they needed. Right. So Dan was able to get me a job at the utility out here in Spokane. I moved back and that change of scenery, I think to just like a, a smaller lifestyle and then, you know, hanging out with Dan who introduced me to real estate and, you know, some of the people that he knows that introduced me to, uh, you know, just like business and a different sort of way of life versus, I, I don't know if you guys ever spent any time in Seattle, but Seattle people there are just, they're just determined to be miserable. I think it's the weather and the traffic and the politics and everything like that. Like they, they, they're like, they're like, I live in a blue, super blue city with terrible weather. I'm going to be like just pissed off at things and miserable about it. And that's going to be me. Right. So it's very toxic and you come to Spokane doesn't have that. So, you know, but anyway, that, that transition allowed me to start actually thinking about taking action because I just wasn't in such a toxic environment anymore. Gotcha. How interesting. That's extremely powerful. You know, like a change in environment is often Mm -hmm. a way to cure a depressive episode like that. I could relate to you pretty strongly on that level. Um, Do you, so you pinpoint the return of who you are outside of the, mm-hmm. the, the depressive episode. You think that's when you went to Spokane and that's when everything yeah. started to change. That's when the shift happened meeting Dan. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Yep. Exactly. That, that was, I can pinpoint it exactly to then. Cause I rem- I remember everything extremely vividly after we moved to Spokane. Like, yes. you know, he, he, I, I would, I, I would actually say that the transition started to happen when I was driving the U-Haul truck over from seattle to spokane i was like leaving mordor you know i was like leaving the cloud of evil and i remember like that drive and i remember coming back and be like this is like a new start right and then even when i got to spokane i had a job here that i didn't like but i was also a different mentality because i knew i didn't like that job in the first couple of weeks and so now it was it was but it wasn't like okay i'm stuck here i didn't have the boeing handcuffs you know but it was like okay well how can i use this to do something different and I started like exploring different things, like different sort of career opportunities and stuff like that, um, which I, you know, ended up not really pursuing. And what I ended up doing, because I realized within myself that I needed some space to figure myself out. So I just quit my job in 2018 with like no real plan or anything. You know, I went from making total compensation, I don't know, low six figures, like 27 years old um, out of Vista. And I was like, you know, F this, and I just quit my job in 2018. Mm -hmm. And that was when it really started to, you know, change obviously, because I had to, I was no longer making any money. (laughs) So that's a good way to spark your brain back up. (laughs) Yeah. 
Totally. Yeah, and so exactly. from there, that transitioned then into real estate. No, actually, I, I didn't start real estate for a little while after that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I one of the biggest catalysts led to me leaving my job. I read the four hour work week um, and I read another book called The Millionaire Fastlane, which are both books predominantly about like, you know, general like transactional businesses or software. So that was what I dabbled in first. Um, my, well, I guess my original intention when I left was to go and become a, like a coach, like a physical trainer, right? Because that's what I, I love to do. I love to compete, all this sort of stuff. So I left. I went and I worked in a um, PT clinic for two weeks and was like, yeah, screw this. I'm not doing this either. <laughs> um, so, I, so I decided not go that route. So I started um, working on building out more scalable businesses, kind of like as is described in the four work with the millionaire fast lane. At first, I was in kind of like the fitness realm. So I started working on like doing remote coaching and like nutrition coaching, all that sort of stuff and got a little bit of money coming in that way. And then, you know, I realized that I didn't necessarily fit the persona for that. You know, I'm not giant and chiseled and handsome, right? Those are like what you need to do to sell that as a guy, honestly. So I was like, okay, well, what's another business model where I can make money and scale that same way? So I got into software. I spent, um, I guess, first off, me and my wife, we traveled. Again, I'm like big into living a lifestyle, right? So me and my wife, we went to New Zealand for about a month, traveled around, and I really used that to sort of like find myself. Um, And that was actually where I kind of came to the epiphany of like, oh, this is how I need to do this thing. So I spent the next few months after that teaching myself how to code. I I just like lived in my basement of my house, like a crazy person was just like, I'm going to learn how to do web development, right? So I did that for a while. May of that year, I got a job at a startup actually based out of Chicago um, and uh, worked, worked for them as like early phase developer for a little while. It was an early phase startup, you know, where they're like, oh, we're going to give you equity, but we're only going to pay you like a tiny bit of money, which you think sounds cool until you realize that it doesn't actually mean anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was like, okay, well, I need, I need money to, uh, you know, be able to live on or at least have a little bit of income coming in. So I had that money from the startup. I was driving for Uber um, and then I, that was like how I was making a lot of my just super minor cash. And then I was, you know, thinking about all the books that I read. I was like, everyone talks about passive income being rental properties. I've been listening to bigger pockets. Like maybe I should buy some properties. So like, I didn't really have any money. Like I had a little bit, but not a huge amount. So I liquidated my corporate 401k that I had built up over the, uh, you know, five years that I was working as an engineer, which was pretty sizable at that point. And I was like, cool, I'm going to use this pay all the penalties. I don't care about that because F the corporate world, that was kind of my mentality. And I'm like, I'm going to buy two turnkey single family new builds and I'm going to make those rental properties. And I was like, cool, they're $200,000. I can probably rent them for like $1,500 a month. You know, I need like a hundred thousand dollars to buy both these things. And I'm like, that's cool. That's what I did. Right. And I didn't understand real estate enough to understand that because my mortgage payment was $1,200 and the rent is $1,500, I'm not going to make 300 bucks because I'm going to have <laughs> overhead, I'm going to have vacancy, I'm going to have, you know, all that sort of stuff, right? Yeah. So, Absolutely. you know, I, I kind of so like just jumped right in. into real estate and you got more involved. Yeah. Like, obviously, you mm-hmm. had some expectations of what it might look like. Like, what were the expectations versus the actual reality of what happened? Yeah, so my, my expectations, and this is why I bought new builds, is I was like, the properties aren't going to need any work because they're brand new. So I'm going to be able, and I'm also going to have sweet properties that everyone wants to live in, you know, even though they were on the higher end. So I was like, cool, I'm going to buy these. My mortgage payment's going to be, you know, 1150 or whatever. I'm going to be able to rent them out for 15 to 1600 and I'll just make money, right? I'll just like put some families in there and I'll just, I'll just crush it. And of course what happened is I bought both these houses 
um, mortgage payment was, you know, what I knew it was going to be. And I go listen for rent, but it's high into the rental market. And so it's taken forever to turn these things up. And I, I'm just like paying money, right? I'm just paying mortgage payment that at that point I couldn't necessarily afford because I just spent all my money to buy the freaking houses, <laughs> right? So that was super stressful. And then what actually ended up happening, I kind of lucked out because I got one of them leased up. Second one was like super stressed me out. I just couldn't get leased up because it was higher, higher end of the market. And then I get a call um, one day from these people that work for the state. And they're like, hey, we noticed you have this house for sale. Is it a rancher? And I was like, I'm not for sale for rent, for it's a rancher. And I said, yeah, it is. And they said, cool. So would you be open to renting to people that are on physical disability from the state? And I was like, well, what does that look like? And they said, well, they're, you know, they're people that are, you know, from lower income backgrounds, they're physically disabled and basically they have full-time care. They're in wheelchairs. We need ranchers that we can put them in. Like we'll pay premium plus rent. And they're like, what would you want for rent? And I was like, I don't know, 2000 bucks. And they're like, done. So they came in and they just moved. And these people are still there to this day. Um, they just moved in, you know, these uh, disabled folks in this home. And I started making decent cash flow right away on a property that's 100% hands off now because it's completely secured by the government and it's uh, maintained by staff. So um, I lucked out with that. But that kind of got me itching though. You know, and after that, I was like a little bit of mailbox money coming in. And I was like, okay, well, how can I start growing this? And then I really started getting into learning about bigger pockets. And I was like, I need to get my money going a little bit further. You know, the Burr method, like flipping houses, all that sort of stuff. So later that year, I bought my first duplex. I took a loan from my parents um, to buy the down payment, to get the down payment on that. Um, me and my wife, we spent a lot of time fixing up that duplex ourselves. We That was back when we could buy stuff off the market that like needed work. It's funny because I remember that one. It was 215000 We ended up getting it for like 197000 because you had to like do work on it. And I was like, it's so crazy to think about that now with how the market's been. How the price um, day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So so that that house I bought it for, that was late twenty eighteen. I bought it for hundred ninety seven. I refinanced it this year to appraise for three ninety five. Um Jeez. so in, insane, right? But you know, we we bought it as a fixer upper. Me and my wife, we were like, you know, getting stuff fixed up there. We were like there on the weekends watching YouTube videos like how to install a shower surround, you know, doing the whole thing. <laughs> Um, we were able to, to refinance that one out, pull out all of our money. And, uh, you know, we had our, our little base paid off my parents. We had a little bit of cash flow coming in. And then I was like, hey, well, I still don't have any capital. So I better go, go start flipping houses. So I started going to meetups and connecting people in bigger pockets. And I connected with a couple that had money. And I had, they, they weren't even from here. They were from out of town. And they basically just wanted to flip houses in Spokane. And they had cash. And I partnered with them and, they brought the money. I brought the hustle and we started flipping houses in 2019. So Amazing. that, yeah, and that's, that's kind of how we got started. So and that's your big break. Yeah, that was, that was kind of the big break. Although I will say the first house I flipped took me four months. Um, I didn't know how to properly estimate for a project of the size. It took me four months. And I made, I think $4,600. So, <laughs> you know, I, st- I was still taking my licks for sure. Not as yeah. necessary though. <laughs> Yeah, you, exactly. you learn more from those licks than you do from the successes, really. Oh, absolutely. For, yeah, for sure. And it's cool knowing you being your business partner, because I know that you are the perpetual optimist. Mm-hmm. And yeah, because I've been through it all. Like it can't be any worse than what I've already done. Honestly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> or we should we should call you the jaded optimist. Yeah, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Sure. Um, cool. So what I'm picking up and learning, and it's just such a 
interesting thing that I'm trying to process as, a, as we're talking is like you really use, like you have a really clear image in your mind of what you don't want your life to look like. Mm-hmm. Maybe even a lot more than what you do want it to look like. Oh yeah. I got no idea what my life to look like. It's like every time I go to these go abundance things and they're like, well, what are your quarterly goals? I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, all I know is that I want to like travel to these places this year. You know, like I, I don't know what I want my two year, three year goal to look like, but you know, I, all, all I know is that there's a certain lifestyle that I really don't want and I will do anything possible to not have that, mm. you know? And, and one of the biggest ways that I counter that is by doing, sort of sometimes extreme life events that are like bucket list items that are, you know, maybe even if they're stretching a little bit, like I'll do it because I don't know, maybe that's the super millennial side of me, right? I value the life experiences, <laughs> but also in my mind, that's what separate separates me from all the people that say, I wish I could do that because mm-hmm. that's the thing too, is I have the ability to do so. So I almost feel like not doing that is like insulting the people that wish that they could honestly totally like going back to the hospice thing and not Mm -hmm. fully living your life Mm -hmm. yeah exactly do you find too that doing those types of events essentially like cements why you work so hard it's like Mm -hmm. you know not only because you can't afford it but but it kind of just re-energizes you to get back into the cycle and always yeah every time you know like especially when we travel one of my one of my favorite parts about traveling is the plane ride back from wherever it is just like sitting there and just reflecting on it and realizing, you know, how fortunate I am, not only just in my, my business, but also just to live in the place that we do and the opportunities and stuff that you really do have by being an American, you know, even though there's a lot of griping for stuff. I mean, tell you what, nothing will set you straight, like going to a true third world country and seeing how other people live. But not only that, you go to a true world country, see how other people live, and then you meet local people. And you realize that they're pretty freaking happy in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously there's shitty countries out there, but, you know, we went to Egypt in October and I didn't realize how large of a population Egypt was. It's like the 14th or 15th most populous country in the world, right? And Cairo is like, I think the third biggest city in the world, right? It's like 20 something million people. It's insane. But you land there and, you know, it's like a entire, there's no skyscraper. So it's a hundred miles end to end of brawl right mm-hmm. and amongst this town or in this huge city are inc- incredible levels of poverty you know like the average monthly income there i think is like 600 700 dollars a month okay there's people that like just live in trash all the housing is subsidized by the government because people can't afford to live anywhere right and you're going through the city and you're just like i'm on another planet right now mm-hmm. okay but then you then you end up going to hotels, bars, restaurants. And we were at places for like a long enough time that we got to see like the regular staff and people are like pretty stoked. Like they're like just super excited about stuff. You know, there was um, some uh, qualifiers for uh, like the world cup going on. So like Egypt was playing soccer and people were freaking pumped on that, you know, like, and then you see that and then you look at how they live and they're sort of the outlook on life. And then, you know, I come back here to my, you know, large house, just me and my wife and everything's clean. Everything's perfect. And then, you know, we immediately go out somewhere and people just start bitching about stuff. It's like, yeah. come on, man. Like, yeah. you need some perspective mm-hmm. in your life, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, but coming back from those, I always just spend time on the plane just sitting and thinking. And that, I always find that that is the most recharging thing ever is when you kind of truly have that perspective. I love so, that. Taking your trip back to be able just to, mm-hmm. to recap on the experience and the lessons. 
Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, and I'm not a big like journaler. I'm not a big like writer. You know, I'm, I'm just big into like the processing of it. Mm, um, yeah. And I, I think there's a lot like it's almost like my meditative time is, you know, the, the flight back from a trip like that. I'll get my meditation for a quarter and, you know. Well, let's kind of dive into this, right? So, I mean, it looks like your your life changed very quickly, right? So, I mean, in 2018, you were doing one thing, and then all of a sudden now, you're starting to knock those things off your bucket list. You know, you're starting to make mm-hmm. your dreams come true. Could we kind of dive deep into how that emotional journey was once that started happening? Yeah. So, I mean, even to this day, I still deal with a lot of imposter syndrome. So, the emotional aspect of it is it is sort of difficult to, I guess, like track back just because it was sort of sudden. And especially when I quit my, my engineering job, you know, me and my wife, we're fortunate that we have, we're pretty simple, like in sort of our wants and needs. So, you know, like we like to travel obviously, but like on our day to day, we don't spend a lot of money on like stuff. So even though our, our income had, um, like been cut into a third, we were able to live super simply. And we did that for all of 2018, all of 2019, all of 2020. And I mean, early uh, 2020, I started my off-market business with Dan that Matt's now a part of. But that first bit, like we didn't make any money. I didn't really start making money until like last summer, you know, like, like 2021 summer, right? And coming out of that, it, it's taken me a while to sort of like, accept that it's okay to do things now and that I don't have to be clipping coupons. I don't have to walk around the grocery store for 15 minutes trying to find the thing that's on sale. Right. Um, and you know that the emotional side of that is, is challenging Mm -hmm. sort of like, I guess, come to grasp with. And, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I always feel grateful for it, but it's also hard not to feel like shame sometimes as well. Just because, Mm -hmm. like I said before, if you don't, exercise that that liberty that you have a little bit it is slightly insulting the people that don't have that right mm-hmm. um, absolutely yeah. can we actually dive deeper into that because most people say something mm-hmm. similar but you're the first one that has um thrown some shame out there so could you kind of explain what that emotion feels like and why you feel that way yeah well i, I think one of the biggest things is you know i'm not like that smart of a person like i mean i I'm, I, I'm thinking I'm reasonably smart. I think you're smart. a little humble. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like, 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 you know, I did well in school and all that sort of stuff, but like, I'm not anyone special, right? I'm not Elon Musk. You know, I'm not like, like next level smart. I mean, I meet a lot of the guys that we have, no one go buttons, things like that. They're obviously much sharper than I am. You know, I think I'm just a little bit more determined um, than a lot of those people and a little bit more risk averse. Like I'm willing to throw myself out there a little bit more. Um, but, you know, I guess I sort of get that that's where the imposter syndrome come in, comes in is like, am I really like deserving of what I have and what sort of I've built? And I mean, obviously I have it right. And I'm, I'm confident I could do it again, but there's a lot of other people that it would be even more impactful on their life than it is mine. And they probably need it a little bit more. So, you know, I guess a little bit of shame from that is like, I mean, I don't know, like I, I, there's, I, I guess I wonder how I got so fortunate to be able to have that. Mm. It's something that comes up regularly I think about. Such an interesting point. I think this is where maybe, you know, the system that is in the U.S. maybe does everybody a little bit of a disservice, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you look at the number of ultra successful people, a lot of them aren't college graduates. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there's, there's a certain path that we go down because it's the path that almost everybody goes down. And I think that might be leading to what you're feeling in the sense of, you know, 
you kind of walked away. You did the path. You got the degree. You got the, the dream job. You, you realized it didn't fit you and you walked away. So everything is telling you this shouldn't be. Like you shouldn't be more successful walking away from the traditional path. But, mm. but obviously that's exactly what happened. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And, and I mean, I think the shame kind of comes in too is like, you know, sometimes I feel like I've, I'm playing like Grand Theft Auto and I typed in the infinite ammo cheat code, you know, like, like yeah. I'm not following the rules. I'm cheating, you know? So, but then, then, but then when I'm talking to people and they're, they're, you know, talking about their successes in their corporate workspace or something, I'm like, well, that's so great. But like, you know, it's like really not, if you know what you could be doing, if you took that same effort and you applied it to something else. Yeah, and it's, it's always fun having those conversations because um, somebody that hasn't had that enlightenment, it's like talking mm -hmm. to a wall. Um, yeah, <laughs> well, see, but and then even though that term right, is like enlightenment, is it's like you know you can say that, but then you're also saying like, well, they're the you know the peons, and I'm the enlightened god, you know, and that, and, that, and I try to not have that mindset. You know, I just spent ten minutes talking about being humbled by people in, you know crappy countries that live in third world sort of situations. It's like now if you come back here and you start to have that with people that are living great lives, like mentally, I feel like that can get super toxic real quick. Mm -hmm. And so I think maybe that shame is my way of trying to avoid falling into that trap. Right. Which mm -hmm. I mean, people do like, they're just like, you know, everyone knows like a rich asshole. Absolutely. Right. And those, those are the people that succumb to that, that nature, right. Of I am better than them because I figured out the, the loopholes. Yeah. And it is, I think it's important to note too, like there are so many facets to life. You got relationships, you got money, you've got all of these different things, experiences, relationships. And a lot of people set out to do things differently in the sense of like a lot of people, maybe their highest virtue isn't financial success. It's, you know, mm -hmm. relationships and so on and so forth. And so, you know, we might look from the outside and say, Hey, they're not where they could be, but they might have no desire to in develop their intelligence in the financial area because they're focused on another area. But mm -hmm. what I want to point out too, like we call it the hockey stick, generally speaking, like when it comes to financials, like most people struggle for who knows how long, a year, 20 years, 30 years. And then they hit a critical mass of knowledge, experience, the right vehicle. And then th their net worth, their income, everything goes up like a hockey stick. And it sounds like for you, that was in 2020. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was definitely the start of it. Um, well, sorry, it was, it was in 2021. 2020 was definitely like the slow ramp up period um, as we were starting trying to figure it out. 2021 was the big one. Um, I mean, and so that was when we had our first super big month. We had our first six figure month as a wholesale business um, in March of, of 2021. And I remember the best thing about that too was I was actually on vacation in Florida as it all came together. So I was on vacation nice. and I came back and we just made, you know, over six mm -hmm. figures in our business. So just checking um, your wires, right? Oh yeah. I mean, well, <laughs> well it's funny because we were, we were down there with some friends from here in Washington and um, they kept giving me a hard time. Cause like, I would like be run upstairs. We had like this big, we were in Dayton. Um, so if, if you've ever been to Dayton before they have like, it's a, all the whole area. It's like up in the panhandle. It's all uh, these like beach houses that are literally meant to just be party houses. They're all like yeah. eight bedrooms, you know, they're like five stories. They're all over the place and they're just like cookie cuttered everywhere. So we're in this Airbnb and, you know, me and my wife, we were up on the top floor 
Anyway, he'd give me a hard time because I'd like run up there to go do work for like an hour in the morning, hour and a half. Like we'd be playing spike ball on the beach and I'd be like, oh, I got to take this phone call and I'd be doing stuff. And everyone's like, you know, you're on vacation, man. Stop working. And I was like, bro, I just made like your annual salary like this week. Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Sit down. (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, There you go. Well, and I I think it's so important to talk about this. And I'm, I'm so thankful that you're so transparent about it because here you are. You, you've had the handcuffs on you, the golden handcuffs. You've worked several mm-hmm. different jobs and you took the time to know what you didn't want in life and you pursued the opposite of that. And then you find this thing where literally you're going to make as much in 12 months as you did in your entire career leading mm-hmm. up to that point. And I think it's just really, really important that we share that message because of the fact that like there are a lot of people that are intelligent, uh, intellectually and emotionally, hard workers, and literally, they just might not be in the right vehicle for that's going to get them there. Yeah. And I mean, I think the biggest thing that affects those people is fear, right? Like they have a fear of, of loss because they don't believe in themselves. And that's the one thing that, you know, I've, I've actually blame fitness a lot for this. I've always had good belief in myself since I got into fitness, because especially in like fitness and strength sports, it's not like a team sport where you can kind of like rely on somebody. Literally, it's just you in your own head and the whole thing. You know, and if there's stuff that you can't lift, you can't move it. Sometimes it's a physical li- limitation. Most of the time, it's the fact that you're in your own head. Brad teaches teach a lot of discipline. And that carries over a lot to, you know, the transitions that I took. I mean, I talk to people all the time. So, like, we, we have a little group coaching program that we do um, that we teach our, our wholesale business called the Instant Investor Program. <clears throat> and uh, a lot of people that apply to be in that, one of the biggest things they, they fret about is, like, you know, they're like, I don't know if I can jump into this business because I can't take that risk on that money. Like I, I can't, you know, whether that's the start, like the cost to join the course, that's the cost to, um, you know, run the systems or anything like that. They're like, I just can't risk that. And I'm always like, well, what's your sort of financial position? Like how long would you carry it? And they're like, I don't know, probably six months. I'm like, bro, that like, there's nothing to risk. <laughs> like, honestly, you know, like, 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 like that, that, that's not, that's like an investment in yourself at that point. Right. And if you don't perform, that's on you. Mm-hmm. You know, like, like it, it's, it's only a risk if you're not going to perform. You know, what it sounds to me like is they're not believing in themselves at that point. Totally. And 100%. And with our system, yeah. these same people are investing forty to $200,000 for a four-year college education. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, it, but, but yeah, but, it, but it's leveraged off, you know, and they, like, they're sold that that's a, that's a good decision by the government. You know, but I mean, if they really wanted, wanted to, they could go and they could put out stuff on a credit card and it's going to be just as expensive as that college <laughs> education is. But your, right. but your upside is significantly higher if you go and start learning to find opportunities to build wealth for yourself. Totally. You know, so... Yeah, it's it. You know that that that's the biggest thing too. When people look at risk, like people will say, like I can't quit my job; it's too risky. Like I can't, you know, take the sleep; it's too risky. But I, like what I always tell people is like, well, is what you're doing right now is that's risky? And they say no. It's like, well, then take the risk, and if it doesn't work, just retreat back to what you're doing right now. Yeah. What's the worst that's going to happen? Nothing. You'll be right back where you started, and you, t- you got a good learning lesson. If anything, you'll probably come out of it a stronger person. Totally. Definitely. So like, let's kind of dive into this. I mean, you just mentioned that your success has come pretty rapidly and boom, all of a sudden you're teaching people, you have students now. It's so like, yeah. how has that transitioned? Like you have to, obviously teaching somebody how to do something is different than doing it yourself. So how has that mindset shift worked out for you? Yeah. So I've, I've always had a inclination to be a coach, just coaching in general. Um, you know, ever since I was younger, 
you know, when I was like, I would teach like my friends tricks on like video games and things like that. And I kind of had that personality where I had a desire to educate people. And then when I was competing, um, in, in different fitness sports, right. I would go and like, I I worked the gyms as coaches. I worked with a lot of different kinds of people from people that were very out of shape and trying to get in shape to high level athletes. And I loved that. Like that was something that, you know, what I've always kind of said, when I get to the point where money doesn't really matter and I just need like a passion business, I want to open a gym and I want to like run that right. Because that, that's my passion deep down. So I've always had that coaching inclination. And then as we transitioned into teaching people about kind of how our business runs, we started this group coaching program. Honestly, the most challenging thing for me is approaching it like a business in a way that I'm really making as much as I should be off of it. Because I find that I tend to be over helpful with people on stuff that, you know, like no other, like no, no guru is going to do. <laughs> you know, so like, you're like, emotionally even, attached. I'm emotionally attached, you know, to these people. And because like, I've always kind of been that way. Like I'm, I'm very individually, I, like, I, I think Dan, our, our other partner, he, he knows me very well. We've been great friends since we were in college and he was in my wedding. He described me in a nutshell, um, where he, he says like, it's like, yeah, I realized Mike in college, um, he doesn't have very many friends, but the friends that he does have, he's extremely close to. Right. And that's completely true. And that's true with my acquaintances, like with a lot of people that I know, I'm either would consider them my very close friends or I don't really talk to them that much. Right. Um, and when I, when I have clients, it's always the same as well. So like I get very attached to people that I know on a one-on-one basis. So, you know, when I'm working with my students, like if they have any troubles, I spend a lot of time on zoom with them going over things, diving into it, which is fine. Um, and I do enjoy it, but I also recognize deep down me as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, that. I'm going to be limited on what I can realistically do after a while, you know? So the mindset's been easy on like a coaching standpoint. It's more just like, how do I structure it appropriately for a business? Um, so it doesn't become, it doesn't end up bringing me back to that situation that I'm trying to avoid where now I'm committing a huge amount of time and I'm not, I don't have the freedom that I've been really get, trying to get after. So. Totally. Yeah. And, and, you know, just to throw this out there, cause I'm partners with you and I understand the value of what you do. Like if, if you're out there and you're having a trouble getting leads, getting distressed sellers to call you, like you need to consider this program. Uh, mm-hmm. The connection that Mike and I have made where, where he provides those opportunities and my sales team closes them, created 16 real estate investment transactions in the very first three weeks that we were together. It's mm-hmm. the most single transformative connection that, that I've made as far as just like a spark plug. And so do whatever it takes to connect with Mike. If your need is to be able to have distressed sellers calling you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. We'll if, if, exactly. If you want to be buying properties, if you want to do the single quickest way to become a millionaire, right. Is to buy property at a discount. You know, if you, if you buy, if you buy a property and there's, you know, it, it's worth $500,000 and you buy it for $250,000 and it needs like, let's say $50,000 worth of work. You just made yourself on your net worth sheet, $200,000. You do that five times your millionaire. It's really not even difficult, right? Like, I mean, you say it like that, it sounds simple, but obviously a little more to it. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, I mean like, between. yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. You got, you got armed robberies, you know, you, uh, yeah, you got sellers getting kidnapped. You got, you know, your <laughs> home Depot warehouse burning down you got all that stuff. But eventually, 
yep, you yep. can you can become a millionaire that way. And the thing with real estate is it's not a get rich quick game. It's a get rich guaranteed game. Mm-hmm. You know, so you had, kind of have to approach with that mindset. And then with our program, it's it's at, it's at the instantinvestorprogram.com. You know, you can go in a, and apply there to work with us. We're trying to find like my ideal situation with this is we're going to have a core community of people kind of nationwide that are running the same basic sort of system and have the same sort of mindsets on, on life and how to run a business that becomes like a mastermind that's collectively growing and scaling as we are trying to battle the things in the real estate world that are kind of out of our control. Like, you know, what the Florida, the feds going to do. We're competing with the hedge funds, you know, we're competing with, uh, local investors who are less ethical and are doing weird things. You know, like there's there's all these different groups that we have to compete with. And my sort of viewpoint is if I can get a bunch of people on my side that are running a similar system to me that are also like-minded, that we can hedge that risk by collectively brainstorming and, and building up each other's businesses and providing opportunity for each other. So um, that's really what I'm trying to build with it. Um, and, uh, you know, like I said, at instantinvestorprogram.com, you can schedule a call and we can see if you're a good fit. You know, it's not for everyone. We've, we've interviewed people that we've turned away just because they did have more of like that, that fear mindset. But if you think that you really do want to, you know, jump in and chase opportunities and, you know, kind of turn you and your family's life and wealth situation around and you're willing to make that commitment, I think it'd be an awesome thing for someone to check out. Mike, I just want to thank you sincerely for coming on. For giving us a glimpse into some very vulnerable aspects of your life, uh, for taking us through your thought processes, for taking us from basically the valley all the way to the mountaintop. Uh, You've given us a unique picture of how to motivate yourself for those that maybe don't have a clear vision, but maybe have a clear vision of what they don't want. Um, I Mm -hmm. thought that was really, really fascinating. And so for everyone listening that's chasing freedom, just Please, if you do nothing else, write one thing down that you took away from today. Take action on it in the next seven days. Share it with somebody that's going to hold you accountable. Because by just taking one action, you're going to move in the direction of freedom. And I guarantee you guys, freedom is not as far away as you think. So thank you guys again for tuning in and we'll catch you on the next episode. Please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Engagement is like gold to us. We can't do what we're doing without it. Reviews and subscriptions, particularly on Apple, Spotify, and YouTube, are worth more than money. So please do what you can to support the show. 